This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. This week, memories of Victoria Wood and a broadcast investigation on working conditions for runners on The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent. Our new entrance to the industry being exploited. Also on the show, the star and producer of Storage Hunters unlock the secrets of Dave's treasure trove of a TV show. And finally, we'll bring you a couple of previews, including the return of Zig and Zag in cartoon form. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. At Maple Street Studios this week, Broadcast International Editor Peter White and, of course, Mr. Stephen D. Wright. It's the right and white combo. Woo! <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, some sad news to start off with, I think. Uh, we should probably mention the uh, untimely death of uh, Victoria Wood. Mm. I mean, it's, 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 it's completely devastated everybody. I mean, it's really... This is our sort of David Bowie moment of TV. There's somebody who has been so influential, so... Uh, just talented on every level, writing, acting, drama, comedy, music, the lot. And she's just gone whoosh, like that, just when and no one, no one knew. And it's an awful feeling because she was only 62. You know, she still had another 20 years of churning out fantastic quality material. It's one of those terrible sort of things that we, you know, like Ronnie Corbett's death, like Terry Wogan, you know, these people were part of your childhood growing up. And um, certainly Victoria Wood's been a, a huge part of my life and one of my proudest moments in TV and something I used to boast about quite a lot was back in the 80s. I uh, was a huge fan of, of uh, Wood and Walters when they were on ITV in 82 and um, wrote off to the BBC as a kind of devoted fan to get audience tickets to see her new series as seen on TV and turned up at TV Centre the first time I'd ever done a studio audience uh, record. And I remember looking around the studio and there was Dawn French and Lenny Henry and I was thinking, oh, my God, they all know her. And I was like, I thought I'd sort of discovered, you know, Victoria Wood. Victoria Wood was my sort of secret. But, of course, everybody knew about her. And I sat there, and she started doing her stuff and these incredible sketches, which now are sort of legendary. And then at the end of the sort of um, the recording, she said, oh, I'm going to do my song now. So we all sat there. There was about 150 of us or whatever in the audience. And she started singing Let's Do It, a song that she's probably the most famous for, you know. Now, we never knew it at the time. But we did know this was incredible. Everybody was hysterical. We, you know, it takes about five minutes to sing the song. We literally lost it. Everybody just couldn't believe how good it was. And then the stage manager said, oh, you fluffed a line, Victoria. You're going to have to do it again. She did again. We all, you know, again, the hysteria starts. And then it was like, actually, we think you fluffed again. You're going to have to do another one. You could see by now she's good because it's like 20 minutes of singing the same song. But luckily for us, it meant that we could actually hear the, the, the lyrics this time, not just laughing like a drain. And then she finished and it was like, and she was exhausted and we were like all exhausted. But it was just one of those moments. And that has gone on to become one of her kind of defining things. And I was sat there watching it. And it's like, she's been part of my telly life, my sort of uh, comedy life. The way I speak is based on Victoria Wood monologues and jokes. It's, it's you know, if you ever meet a northern person who doesn't talk like Victoria Wood, then they, you know, they're not worth knowing. Everybody I know is devastated by this. It's it's a, a horrendous moment. It really is. I'm sure we'll be doing more on Victoria Wood and uh, her legacy in next week's issue of broadcast. But uh, now time for something completely different. Our first stop this week, a row over conditions for runners on Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor. 
Uh, broadcasters uncovered claims of entry-level staff completing regular 17-hour shifts on low pay. Uh, we've also revealed that casual runners are being made to pay for travel and accommodation during audition tours and are not receiving payment uh, for untaken holiday. The complaints have been taken up by runners' rights campaigner Mark Watson, who has written to Thames TV and the health and safety executive to raise the concerns and demand change. Uh, Thames has, of course, defended its record. Uh, the company behind ITV's entertainment juggernauts disputed claims of over 17-hour shifts and said it takes pride in nurturing, training and promoting young staff. I'm quite shocked at this because this is a hugely well-budgeted show, probably the biggest budget in British TV. And if they're being tight with the runners, where is the money going? You know what I mean? It's like, how can you make people pay their own way to go to auditions around the country or whatever when they're earning nothing, basically? The working the long hours doesn't really shock me. Everybody does long hours. And most shows, you, you go through that kind of horrible sort of Dickensian sweatshop style labour at least once in your career. But the, but the not paying people is the really sort of, that's the really unpleasant part. Come on, you must have had some some runner stories. What's the what's the strangest or, or most well, horrible experience? Well, I was never a runner. You... Unfortunately, I came in at a, a researcher level, which meant I never actually did that. You know the slave style labour that you do, and of course, also since then, there's been a new kind of level, which is uh, reality TV came in, and that that just needed bodies, anybody. Now they're not necessarily doing proper shows; they're doing sort of logging, they're doing running around, they're doing basic. Uh, labour, you know, or light domestic duties, a lot of, you know, so for years it was Big Brother that was the sort of horror story because you had to wake, uh, work 36-hour shifts, you were, you know, you're the one that went out and got the shopping, you're the one that cleaned the toilets, you, you know, you, there was a lot of sort of basic servitude, um, and then the worst thing of all was logging the hours and hours of, of nothing happening rushies, but, you know, and I, but I thought those days had gone, so... Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor, which are the biggest shows on British TV, for them to then be accused of the same style of servitude is horrible. I mean, it's, it's disgraceful, really, because they can afford to pay these runners, you know, can easily afford to pay these runners. So it was the travel and accommodation expenses. Well, that, the, that, if that, you're, if you're going shocking? up to Manchester to do three days of auditions or something, or Liverpool, and you're from London, and you're being paid sod all... And then they expect you to pay your train fare and your accommodation. That's disgraceful, if it's true. It, it is certainly true. sounds true. It is true. <laughs> well, there you go. It's utterly disgraceful. It's a scandal. Yes. I, I should point out that uh, as a result of broadcast going to terms with this story, they have decided to change their policy on that issue. Well, thank God for that. But, yeah, these shows are not young. They've, no. they've been on air for and the, the 10 budget, years you know, or more. Cal boasted a few years ago that he'd sort of doubled the budgets. And he was like, look at all this money I'm spending on st- screen. So, you know, almost every show has helicopter shots and expensive multi-camera this. and da, da, da. What, on the backs of young people who are being paid sod all? Do we think that TV systematically exploits young people? Yes, absolutely. But Why? Why? There's because no shortage of money in Because they're there? there and they're available and there's always and one. They're running, some and they're running and they're willing runners. Or, you know, there's some poor sap wants to do it. but And so, you know, whether that'll ever change, I don't know. But but de- fairness and decency, when you are a, on a well-budgeted show, should come quite high up on the list. You know, a lot of people will work for nothing to help a friend who's trying to sort of get a film off the ground or do a shoot because it's you get, get some experience. You know, there's a lot of... A quid pro quo style exploitation, which is sort of understood. People have to get experience to get going. They have to get to know people. Da, 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 da. So as long as it's not absolute pure exploitation, which is what this is, then it's sort of that's part of the course. 
everyone has done those hours. You know, the producer will also be working the long hours as well. It's very rare that the runner's the only person left. It's most of the time everyone's in. You know, you can often ring a TV company at 10 o'clock and someone answers the phone. You know what I mean? So that's a kind of industry-wide, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, rigour, I suppose, that everyone has to do. But but actually exploiting young people as kind of unpaid labour is outrageous. And uh, Bechter at the moment is trying to uh, launch a runner's charter. So this will be a sort of 11, 11 commitments. Yeah, I mean, for, we've, for we have these every people. so often. It's just, you know, it's good good practice. You, should, you shouldn't be exploiting young people who, without whom the show couldn't run, for example. You know, these shows where you, like Britain's Got Talent and X Factor, where there are thousands of people needing corralling and looking after and everything else, you know, they can't do those shows without those runners. So, you know, what will happen is ultimately people will start saying, I won't work for them. But there'll always be some, you know, keen young media student who will sleep on a friend's floor and, and starve. Pete, do you think this is unique to the UK? Probably not. <laughs> no, probably, I don't think it's unique to television either. Yeah. You mentioned film, and, and any industry that's a bit sexier than than others will have this problem. Whether it's you know whether it's the movie business or you know sports or anything where people really want to get in, they'll, they'll have that problem. It's just whether anything can be done about it. Um, like you say, you know these campaigns are, are all well and good, but but actually, will they ever really make a difference? Will anyone actually do anything? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Bechtu will get his way. ITV, BBC, and PAC will sign up to these I mean, broadcast should do more of this sort of, exp- you know, exposing these kind of practices because people don't know it's going on. When they do know, they're, they're embarrassed. So carry on, you know, doing that stuff because that's the only way to shine a light on it. Well, watch this space. Hopefully yeah. we'll endeavour to do that. Uh, up next, uh, it's been a busy old fortnight for Netflix. After schmoozing journalists in Paris last week, the digital giant revealed that it is expecting subscriber growth to slow this year. It also revealed plans to bolster its in-house production arm, which already produces Netflix originals, including The Ranch. On top of all that, Broadcast revealed this week that the company has commissioned its latest series from a UK indie. Uh, Channel 4-backed Lightbox Media will make eight-part series Captive, which would explore kidnapping and hostage negotiations across the globe with a different incident highlighted in each episode. Pete, you've been following this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Netflix is a really busy few weeks. Um, there's a whole bunch of different stories here, almost three things to, to pick apart. Um, the most terrifying for producers is probably the fact that um, Reed Hastings said they're going to build out Netflix Studios, which is their in-house production arm. Um, as you said, at the moment, they're making the Ashton Kutcher comedy, The Ranch, and they're making a Drew Barrymore series called Santa Clarita Diet. Um, but the, the idea that they're going to be doing this in-house means that um, they may not you know, ne- need the left banks of the world and and so forth to to bring them ideas they'll just make them themselves so so that's one thing um on the flip of that they you know since they've started being getting into factual programming um you know obviously making a murder was a huge success for them over christmas um lightbox has got this this show away which is you know fantastic for them and fantastic for such a small company to to get such a show away um and it shows that actually you know they really are doing what they said they were going to do and, and commissioning across all genres or starting to um and then comes amid the fact that um they launched 130 territories 
but perhaps aren't growing as quickly as they thought they would. Um, they're sort of suggesting that next quarter they're going to be going to be down. Um, they're still seen around the world as a U.S. service. Um, so whether, is that the reason for that? I think so. There's there's a couple of things. There's credit card problems in in many places. It's launched, um, and a lot of the content is U.S. So whilst that is successful in in places, I think the real driver for many of the the sort of OTT uh, players is going to be local. It's going to be what have you got that that I want to watch. That in appeals my... to a, a local a- audience. Absolutely. So it's always a long tail on Netflix. I think yeah. you know you've got that nice, bright, shiny original content, but the rest of it, to me, seems like dross. For every house of cards, there's, you know, 100 shows you didn't want to watch at the time. And for them sort of saying, oh, we're going to build our own studio, they still are content weak. You know what I mean? And so this sort of slightly kind of arrogant, oh, you know, we're going to take on the world and do our own business. You're like, you're going to, you're going to need all those indies. You're going to need the new ideas because the drop-off from viewers is quite high because once you've seen Kimmy Schmidt or House of Cards or whatever or waited a whole year to see something. There's virtually nothing else to watch. And I regularly scan, scan through everything on Are Netflix. you a subscriber? Yeah, yeah and, I, and I've managed to be able to cheat onto the US site so I can look at that one as well. And all. And there's still nothing to watch. We wouldn't advocate that on Talking course TV, not, just to be clear. You, know, <laughs> you know, the kids are doing it. We digital kids, but... Um, there's a lot of churn. A lot of it, people take up a, a Netflix subscription for a month to watch, yeah, that's it. watch a I few shows. I turn it on and off, basically. You can binge Absolutely, watch yeah. all the quality shows in about two weeks, yeah. and then you could get rid of your subscription so i mean the thing about netflix isn't that they're trying to build their own studio they should be approaching every indie in the world and saying we'll buy your content not we'll create our own because they're not good at content they have to get it in but they're very blasé the number of producers i speak to said do you know anyone in netflix how do i get how do i get in touch yeah. you know the uk commissioner must is have based, a name somewhere the uk <laughs> commissioner is based in los angeles that yeah. says all you need to know about netflix is well exactly the, is the the proportion of column inches that netflix generates does that is no, that they, far, they, is it far out of proportion with the, uh, with the actual absolutely. people watching? They're the Uber and, of television. Yeah, they sound cool. That's it. Netflix sounds cooler than BBC Two, and what they said about BBC Two, you know, what a load of bollocks! What a lovely little segue. I was just going to ask. Well, you there that. you go. But I mean, they said that they're going to turn. But well, BBC Two will become online. It's inevitable. That's what they told Buzz. Oh, honestly, well, so I nearly punched my. Uh, my computer Your screen. TV screen. <laughs> Absolutely. I was so I was got all kind of rage and you know, of patriotism there. But no, that arrogance of, you know, we know what we're doing. You don't. You've bought a couple of good series. The rest of it is, you know, Z list trash. And everybody gets bored with it. You know, you have to improve. People are not tuning into Netflix because they want to. They're tuning in and then they're tuning out. And um, you know, the BBC can beat Netflix anytime it wants just by putting on a new series. You know what I mean? For free, sort of, in, in, you know, in comparison to Netflix. So this sort of arrogance of Netflix is based on the fact that uh, right now they're cool. Yeah. Nobody says, let's go on BBC and chill. <laughs> let's go night manager and chill. You know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't work. It's, it's like, it's a cool phrase. Vice has written about it. BuzzFeed writes about it. It's, a, it's all a house of cards. Oh, there you go. How clever <laughs> am I? Very nice. See? Finally, our Commissioner of the Fortnight, uh, our honour goes to Sky, which has dished out millions of pounds for six new drama series. Um, A bit to get through here, so I will just preface a few of them. Idris Elba will star in Gorilla, 
a Sky Atlantic political drama set in the 1970s, which will be made by 50 Fathoms and co-produced by US network Showtime. Uh, Kudos will make Tin Star, a crime series set in a remote mountain filled with migrant oil workers. It stars Mad Men's Christina Hendricks and Reservoir Dogs actor Tim Roth. And we'll highlight a third one. Dawn French will feature in Bandit Television's Delicious, a romantic comedy set in the beautiful countryside of Cornwall's Tamar Valley. Um, Pete, again, you've been writing about this. You spoke to Anne Mensa mm-hmm. this week. What does it say about Sky's drama ambitions? It, it shows they're still spending money on it. Uh, there's two two slightly different things here. There's three shows for Sky Atlantic and three shows for, for Sky One. Um, the Sky Atlantic shows, I think Gorilla there you mentioned is probably the standout one, a sort of political drama set in the 70s with, with Idris Elba and written by John Ridley, who um, who won the Oscar for, for 12 Years a Slave um, and said they'd been developing it before he, um, he even won his Oscar. So they sort of caught, caught lucky on that. Um, but yeah, it shows that, you know, they're really putting some money behind this. You know, the fact they've got top tier talent like Christina Hendricks and Tim Roth. and um, That's for Sky Atlantic as well. That's for Sky Atlantic as well. And Julia Star- uh, Yes. So Dawn French is in in the Sky One show, Delicious, and and that's a bit more of what your sort of Sky One heartland sounds a little bit like Stella, really. And they had the Last Dragon Slayer, which is a, a Christmas movie that they're doing as well, and Jamestown, which is a carnival films um, period drama set in uh, the 1600s, I think. They're obviously spending money. She says there's more to come. You know, they are having to to take on the lights of Netflix and, and show that, you know, they're not just doing one or two. If you're paying 50 quid a month for your Sky subscription, there's got to be year-round drama, and, and it seems they're certainly doing that. Will audiences get sick of too much drama? Oh, God. It <laughs> depends whether the drama's any good. It's the old old question, the old answer. You know, do you get sick of a big Saturday night show only if it's rubbish? You know, if you watch a great drama followed by a great drama followed by a great drama, then you will, you know, you'll never go out. You'll probably die of, of a vitamin D deficiency because you will be glued to your TV. But luckily, there's always a crap one coming along. <laughs> you know what I mean? So hearing That's this, your window to get out. Well, exactly. That's <laughs> it. You go out and you buy some food or whatever, you know. But, you know, TV used to be great. Then there was too much of it. And now, you know, these, I mean, it's, it's a big order to announce, but you won't see them all in the same week. This is spread over a year. You know what I mean? So it sounds fantastic. You know, th- three big dramas for each channel. Brilliant. That's exactly what you want. And, it's a, and it is two fingers up to Netflix, who aren't commissioning anything like as much as this. There were 409 scripted shows on air in the United States last year. I'd be fascinated to know what the number in the UK was as to whether we're sort of, you know, getting anywhere close to, to that. Um, we should try and figure that out. We should maybe. try and figure that <laughs> out. Um, we should. And, you know, it'd be interesting, you know, the term peak TV or peak drama. And I think, you know, with this, you know, we are getting to that point where people only have a certain capacity to mm. to watch. I mean, you know, we always talk about in the office, have you seen this? And, and a lot of times people mm. are... Um, you know, just don't have that time. I mean, I watch a lot of telly. I have no life whatsoever. And even I start to give up on a, quite a few of the kind of American genre-based things which are the same every week. You know, you watch one, you watch another, and you think, right, forget it. You know, 22 episodes I can live without now. And there's a lot of that. I mean, the distinctive stuff will always, always uh, come through because that's what everybody wants, really distinctive stuff. That's why we're waiting for Game of Thrones, for example. Not because it's another dragon fantasy, but because it's Game of Thrones, it's different. You know what I mean? It's so different that you will wait all, you know, for a whole year for that. Another Sky Atlantic show. Well, exactly, yeah. So that's your news for this week. Thanks to Stephen and Pete.
Up next, we fling open the doors to Dave's hit factual series, Storage Hunters. Shipped to the UK from America by North One, the T-Group format has just returned for its fifth series on UK TV's channel. Travelling the country with a colourful cast of junk journeymen is host Sean Kelly, who auctions off the contents of disregarded storage units. Mr Kelly and Storage Hunters series producer Sean Doherty will be with us shortly to unlock the show's secrets. But first a clip. Here Sean opens a storage unit in Somerset, revealing some underwhelming carpet cutoffs. All right. Not the best looking bin. If anybody's not interested in this and want to move on to the next unit, go ahead, fine. Whoever wants to buy it, stick around. I'll give you two minutes and we'll sell it. Let's go. What do you reckon? This is a bin there for Bodget and Leggett. Bit of a mishmash here, isn't it? Offcuts and remnants and parquet flooring. I don't see anything in this bin other than a hundred quid. No more. Nice bit of underlay, tiles, laminate flooring, easy sell. What's that in there you got? You got about 23 square metres laminate flooring. That'd do a kitchen. It's there right in front of you, what you're getting. There's nothing to look through. What's there is there. What's that? Carpets. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, Sean and Sean, welcome. Um, so, Sean, the producer, you uh, have you uh, wrapped and delivered? He's the one with, the funny, he's the one with the funny accent. <laughs> you're the one with the American He's the one with the funny accent, so you'll be able to tell which one's which. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. yeah we're pretty distinct in, our, in how we speak. Yes, we have just delivered all the final ten, so yeah, we are good to go on series five talk us through that process is it how long has that taken when did you start filming and how long does the edit take it's normally about a four to five month process from start to finish because obviously finding locations casting putting the team together there's about 25 of us that go on the road and then with the background and the bidders you're looking at another 20 people on camera so just the logistics of that is is you know there's a lot of organization involved so yeah. And Sean, you're over here for reasonable periods of time, are you? Yeah, for good chunks. Uh, I just got back two weeks ago, or a week ago, I guess it was. Yeah, and I'll be here probably through February. And uh, yeah, so I'm residing in the UK. What have you made of the response over here? Because it, you know, it was a hit almost as soon as it launched, wasn't it? Well, you know what was great is that the American one had already kind of helped, you know, pave the way and give us like a good fan base. So then uh, coming in and doing the the British one on top of it has been, I think, I think it was easy and hard at the same time because people had expectations of from the American one and the American cast. What's the British one going to be like? So we had we had something set up perfectly for us, and then we had our challenges in other areas. So it's been it's been good. Bad. What were those challenges? Well, the challenges is that now all of a sudden you've got fresh faces, new characters that the audience has to get used to. And it's one thing where Brits can like look at these big stereotypical Americans. Like you watch an American storage hunters episode, you see these very big stereotypical American characters. And to Brits, they're like, yeah, those are Americans. That's how Americans act. In America, we watch uh, storage hunters and we go, look at these idiots, right? <laughs> but you guys, but the Brits like those big characters. But when we come to the UK and now all of a sudden we have someone from, we have a couple of people from Stoke and we've got people that from around the country and they kind of represent the area and you and, P, and the Brits have to look at their own stereotypes in the face they're like what oh, and they there can, are some big characters though and, and they can, <laughs> yeah and the thing is it's tough it's tough to look at yourself in the mirror and that's kind of what's happening with this series is now all of a sudden it's not Americans we can laugh at it's like sometimes you're looking at your own self and it's it's a little I think it's a little tougher to digest but it's been good because uh 
uh, you know, we've just tried to encourage people that are really doing this for a living. And, and so, you know, try to bring some authenticity to it. And so is that key, Sean, that authenticity and, and people who really genuinely want the contents of those boxes? It is key. And that's why when we when we do cast, when we uh, we try and find these people, we go to uh, markets or antique uh, auctions. We go around the country looking for genuine traders. And they've they've all got a background in trade, and they all know what they're looking at. Some more than others. Yeah. Uh, there's one or two characters who uh, like Heavy D, for example. Where did you find Heavy D? The, he is like he is the brashest. He, you know, he, he sells at a imagine. he sells at a car boot sale right outside East London, and he's out there every single Saturday. And if and everyone who goes to that car boot sale knows who this guy is because he's just he's so such a big personality, you know. And so when we have like our producers going out and walking around, we're not just going to auctions, but sometimes we're just looking for traders, you know. And you can't go to this particular car boot and not know who Heavy D is. That so, doesn't surprise me. Yeah. To, <laughs> so he so he so he's like he brings like a different flavor to it for us because he's you know let me just face he's an idiot, but we love him. He's our he's our idiot. You know what I mean? Uh, he's not the most knowledgeable. Guy. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I'm not sure he finished the third grade, but I will say that he brings an energy and an excitement to the show that we enjoy. He's good television. But then we have others who are experts who are, you know, and that's and that's what you need. You need you need a balance of people because sometimes the expert is great, but sometimes it's dry, you know. But we found Heavy D uh, purely by accident. Um, we, we found a guy on Chapel Market, which was just behind North One's old buildings in Islington. And uh, he, he was going to be in the first episode and he turned up and he said, I've brought my friend along. Is it all right if he stands in the background? You won't notice him. <laughs> and then the very first auction we ever did uh, in Barking, um, we, Sean started bid calling saying, who wants to buy this? And we just heard this boom from the, the, the back of the, the bidders. And he wasn't mic'd up. And so immediately Sean and I both said, okay, we got to throw a mic on this guy because he was just, he was outshining everyone else with his enthusiasm. And that's what you're looking for in these shows. You want people who will, who will step up and, you know, not, not get camera shy. Uh, you do have to keep him under control a little. And some of the rest well, of the cast. I mean, did, there's we, genuine you know, scraps. We honestly, did, we honestly <laughs> didn't realize what we were unleashing with this guy. You know, we should have, we should have, we should have seen it, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, he's, he's a tough, he's a tough one to kind of control because he's just so crazy sometimes. And, and that's what he's like all day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's he's authentic. Just full on. Full and that's on. him. That's, he's that's, not, he's not playing for the cameras. No. Not at all. That's heavy D. Okay. No. So how do you identify the storage plots and are, are these units, are these bins as you call them, are they real? Yes, absolutely real. <laughs> I mean, the, the day before production goes in and just checks, you know, for compliance reasons, that everything in there is, is what it should be. And you genuinely no... don't know what's in them? Sean and the bidders, don't, we see them the day before because we have to, and we film them because, um, well, we have to go and film them because we got all the shots of, the, uh, of, of what the bin looks like so that we can cut them in with the auction as it's happening. But, um, but... Yeah, we don't know what you they know, don't in, know. In what's America, in there. we we tried we tried doing because in America we made eighty of these episodes, right? And so we tried making it several different ways. We tried like we we tried going and just getting stuff that was up for auction and then just auctioning that off, you know, just like that without double checking anything. Uh, that led to problems because there was a unit at one of the auctions that uh, hadn't gotten cleared and we sold it on TV and then there was a lawsuit. 
So we thought, okay, well, that's not the smartest thing. So then, so then production would go in and double check all the paperwork, cut the, cut the unit open, look at it, put a fresh lock on it. And we would, then we'd, we knew we were covered and we weren't going to get sued. Um, and then at one point we thought, oh, we'll just show it to the bidders ahead of time so that they kind of know what to, to expect. And we did that like one or two episodes and that was a horrible idea. So we quickly went back to them not ever knowing. Cause the surprise is half the fun of it. Yeah. And it? I would say that like out of 80 episodes in the States, we had two episodes where we experimented with like letting them see it you know and discussing stuff ahead of time and then we quickly realized this is a horrible idea these guys should never know i don't want to know as the auctioneer i want to be surprised when the door comes up uh so so from day one here in the uk we've you know we've never once that what you see on camera where the lock gets cut and the door comes up that's them seeing it for the first time how useful was that experience when you're adapting the, the format what to have there? to have that the, the, you know that those tried and tested elements and what, to what, know what works well. Well, it was taking the American show and then adapting it for for Britain. There were certain key elements that we had to keep. The first one is Sean Kelly. We we had to make sure we had the face of the show, and that was Sean. The key thing in adapting it was the British sense of humour and making sure that it's funny. And the the, the key thing that John Quinn, who's the exec, said to me was just make it funny. Plus, we're on Dave, right? And yeah, I mean, and that's, you know what's crazy is that when I first, I don't own the rights to the show or anything like that, but I did, I was the guy that came up with the idea for the show and I shot the original three minute video and took it to LA and that's what became Storage Hunters. And I'm a stand-up comedian and, a, and an auctioneer and I always wanted to have a show that showcased my two things. Think me loving to make people laugh and being an auctioneer and being good at it. And that was the whole idea. That's why I created the show. And to see it like where it comes to the UK and they get it and they're like, let's Let's keep it funny. That that was the most important thing to me. Let's be silly. Let's have some fun. You know, at the at the end of the day, you know, it's it should be entertainment. I don't, we want people sitting on the couch. Maybe maybe these are people who are you know aspire to be entrepreneurs or whatever. But we'd like people to get a good laugh. You know, and and so are there things that you do to tease out those laughs? Absolutely. What works? Well, I mean, the the, the key thing about getting making it funny is casting, and making sure that you have characters who are standalone funny. So Nat and John are. They could be in pantomime next week because John's full of double entendres and Nat's looks, uh, you know, they could stop a bullet 50 yards. Um, Linda is laugh out loud. The, the, the Some of the expressions Linda comes out with, um, Dave's using Linda at the moment as a as a trail for the new series because I, I thought when I first met Linda, I thought she was an actress because I just thought I thought, OK, well, no one's really this dumb. You know, like this is this is an act, right? This is no one. No one's really like this. But as I got to know Linda, like she's not an actress. She she buys and sells at auctions. She 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 has special circumstances financially that allow her to not have to sell anything if she doesn't want to. And she is just a spacey blonde. And she's she's a sweetheart. She has a big heart. She's a lovely, lovely woman. But she says some of the most idiotic stuff. And it's just, it's comedy magic. But you want a bit of that. You want the expertise and, and the laughs, don't you, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And so you have to, it's, it's, fun, it's funny. The whole show, is, it's a balance. Like, it can't just all be silly fun and laughs and it can't all be it can't you know it can't all be like big heavy d moments but you know as long as we try to keep a mix and a balance in there so that you know the viewers get a little bit of everything and how symbolic is that 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 bolt cutting moment because in every box you see it don't you is that something you quite conscious of well there are, there are key format points throughout throughout the show i mean uh we have five auctions per show uh it starts with sean calling everybody in 
and then the ball cutting. And these moments are spikes. There are, as a 22 and a half minute show, you've got five auctions. It ends up being with uh, opening titles and pre-titles. It ends up being about four minutes for each auction, four and a half minutes. And you, you're looking at 45 seconds per segment and each one is a spike in, in, the, in the audience's interest from the bolt cutting to revealing what's in, inside the bin, to who wants it, and then the auction itself. And that can end up in fistfights or, or comedy laughter. And then the key thing, it's all about gambling. Have they won or have they lost? Because you do a little bit of follow-up, don't you? In terms of you know, seeing how well things might sell. In some episodes I've seen, you actually see them getting stuff valued properly, don't you? Yes, we have explorations and, and valuations. Um, again, we follow, we follow to see if, if, if they've really made any, any big profit or not. What's what's the the worst bin you've seen and and the the the, the most shocking bid? Mm, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the the worst ones that I've seen have actually not been during the show. You know, like I just did a storage auction in California three weeks ago. I did 120 units in one day. On the show, we show five. Uh, when uh when we're not making a show and we don't have to go in and film everything, and I'm just selling units, I cut the lock. I let people look for about 30 seconds and I sell it. And so I did a hundred and I did 120 bins in just under three hours and just cranked them out. And it's those days. That's day- hard work. I yeah. Imagine. And it's those days where you where you open the door and you go, Oh my lord, what is this? And you find crime scenes and you find like I have a guy in California, his attorney just contacted me from an auction that I did last April where he apparently he had found several kilos of uh, of cocaine inside the unit. And but he, he didn't do the right thing. What he should have done was he should have contacted the, you know, he should have contacted the officials right away and said, "Hey, I found all this cocaine." And the DEA would have came in and confiscated it and it wouldn't have been a problem. He said that he didn't realize the cocaine was in there and it, he loaded it into his truck and then he took it home and it's been sitting in his house for the last... Well, apparently he was out trying to find a buyer because he's not really a cocaine oh dealer. God. So now he's facing 10 years in prison. So it's like... It, you don't have that problem here in the UK, I take it. Uh, <laughs> not that Given been, that you're vetting boxes. Not that we've been able to broadcast. But uh, we do have one in the next episode where uh, we auction off some portaloos and they haven't been cleaned. <laughs> and that, that was a pretty that was a pretty messy affair. Wow! And you you've got an extraordinary voice that you do. Sean, What's that? When you're when you're when you're doing your auction? Oh, the bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, Can you yeah. give us a blast? Here we go. I'm sorry, man. I'm 25 pounds. I'm 25. I'm 100 on to buy two. 200 pounds. I'm going to do the divorce. 500 pounds. That's a monkey. All in fair warrant. Sold your way for 500 pounds. Next unit. We've made 51 episodes so far in two years. And in that time, I still can't understand what you said. Uh, and that, you know, and I think that's kind of a cool point, which is 51 episodes in under two years is a testament to a couple of things. Uh, one, to, to the format, right? Two, I think, to, uh, to the fact that our series producer, you know, getting in there and putting 51 of these together i think anyone that works in the industry realizes that's no small feat you know a bit of praise i like it Um, yeah thank you what's next then well so far we've done uh 51 episodes uh 50 of the normal and then we did one uh one-off celebrity special at christmas which was um dave's most watched show last year uh so we're hoping that that will that will return in the future and we just love making the series, don't we? So we're, it's fun. We just wanted to to keep going. You know, we've we've talked n- numerous times about this format because Sean was talking about how it has all those spikes, and because he and I have both created formats in the past for other shows, and we thought about th- this format 
the way it's so engaging and it holds the viewer's you know attention, it's really what you want in a format because every seven seconds something different's happening. You know, and in today's world when you're watching you know non-scripted television, the shows that are kind of holding the younger audience's attention because everyone's got ADD because they have their smartphones and they're constantly entertained with you know all these little short video clips, is that when you're watching uh, non-scripted a lot of times um, the cameras go back and forth with you know you can count like one second, two second, three second. And you you just keep seeing the camera switch. So not only do we have that incorporated in, but then we also have something completely different happening like every seven seconds. And I think that it, I think that that is kind of what in today's world is what's kind of still kind of holding that viewer's attention. Uh, and it's that's what makes it a good format. Right. From my point of view, the hardest part is getting it down to 22 and a half minutes because there is <laughs> so much easy. content in, in one episode. So 12 hard. to 14 hour day that we work into 22 minutes. Yeah. yeah, we end up with about 15 hours of rushes, but that isn't the, that isn't the real problem. The real problem is that everyone is mic'd. So you times that by eight people or nine with Sean's Would mic. you prefer it to be a bit longer, maybe? The Celebrity Series was one hour, uh, and that was it, it had the same pace. We had one more auction, but it had the same pace to it, and it, it, could, stre- it could easily make a, a one-hour one hour show, but... It's beautiful the way it is, so okay. we just want to keep making it. Well, you've clearly got a good tried and tested formula, and we wish you all the best for the rest of the series. Storage Hunters continues next Tuesday at 8pm on Dave. <laughs> on to some previews now. Back with me on the Talking TV sofa are Stephen D. Wright and Peter White. First up is Zig and Zag, immortalised in cartoon form. The alien puppet twins started life on RTE in Ireland before rocketing to fame on The Big Breakfast. CBBC's 26-part series will feature the pair setting up home on Earth after crash landing in suburbia. Here the duo join a long queue for the ice cream van and finally reach the front. Next! (gasps) Two ice creams! Please, Mr. Cool! So let me guess, you want ice cream? Yep! You want it real bad? Badder than Biddly Bad. Well? Yeah. Well? Yeah. How can I put this? I'm all out of ice cream. No! <laughs> so, your former colleagues. My former colleagues, I worked with them in 1994 on The Big Breakfast. And uh, they are, to this day, the most professional presenters I've ever worked with. They were amazing. <laughs> they were so funny. And they really are funny. But And, and the live action puppets are just, they're so kind of in your face and work on every level, adults and kids. I mean, this is much more kids, a cartoon, but there's little, there's sparks of how kind of, you know, subversive Zig and Zag is. I mean, have they that, captured that? That's why I wanted they, to ask. I think they have. I mean, you know, for a kid's show, I think there's a, you know, obviously it's, it's simplistic and all the rest of it, you know, they're not quite as outrageous as they were on The Big Breakfast, but... Um, you know, maybe they could be a bit more. Do you not I, think they've watered them down? I mean, I, you know, as you say, it's, oh, compared a, it's, to what it's they a kid's were, cartoon, yes, but, but I, I, I mean, remember... This is a kid's show now, you Of know? course. I remember um, the two uh, um, memories I've got of Zig and Zaga. Uh, they did a, a Spice Girls week, <laughs> and they interviewed a different Spice Girl each time, and, and some of the stuff they were saying was just <laughs> priceless. And there was an Ant and Deck interview, and for most of the interview, they weren't really asking Ant and Deck questions, and it was really early on, Ant and Deck were sort of still mm. PJ and Duncan. Um and it was really anarchic and really edgy. Well, and now yeah. this this just strikes me as I mean, any other cartoon. Know, this is scripted and drawn. So that kind of anarchic live edginess, what they're going to say next, has obviously been, you know, penciled out months in advance. So that does take a lot of that danger away. 
but they're not you know they're not anodyne they're not uh, you know boring uh, you know there's a touch of spongebob about this um they could be more zig and zag i think you know but you know give them a chance to get on air not frighten the parents and then let's you know bring in a little bit more of the old zaniness well do you know i mean it's it's all about Zig really because you know Zig's a dangerous one. Zag's a bit of a pain in the ass. Got, we, everybody knows that who works with him. He's the fastidious one. Do you know what I mean? He's he's you know he's not the rule breaker. That's all Zig. Uh, there's there's a fantastic clip doing the rounds online when Robin Williams died uh, of them interviewing him on the Big Breakfast as well. Oh, right. There's uh, there's so many. I'm well, sure we, you could I go mean, over. To, the job I had was basically uh, working with Zig and Zag. So we would we would pre-record all the interviews because of course the stars wouldn't come in sort of five in the morning at the big breakfast <laughs> they would come in at half nine after you film, filmed that morning's breakfast and we would then have to everybody would have to change clothes you cut it in and you cut it in so that was how they did it it was a great way of doing it but it was just amazing i mean they, they were shooting in a, a small bathroom there was about a, six inches of space and these stars would get in and sit between the two puppeteers you know kieran and mick and then off they went, and it was like anything could happen. And it was pure comedy. It was amazing. And make, they're so talented, these two guys. They really are. Well, hopefully that will translate in the, in mm. the children's show. Uh, Zig and Zag is made by Jam Media and Flickrpix. It launches on the 25th of April on CBBC. Uh, finally, ITV's latest factual format, What Would Be Your Miracle? Emma Willis swaps the shiny floor of The Voice for the hospital ward to follow stories of people whose lives have been transformed by modern medicine. Produced by Optimum Television, in this clip we hear from Darren, who has cerebral palsy. Here he speaks to Emma as he prepares for an operation. So you're about to have this operation next week. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? A bit nervous. So what are you nervous about, do you think? I never stayed in hospital or I never had an operation before. Mm. If you were to to walk after the operation and to, to get rid of your wheelchair, then a whole new world would open up for you. Yeah, I could do more things that I want to do. Close your eyes. What would be your miracle? To play football. How exciting. Are you excited? Yeah. I hope it all goes incredibly well and I hope you get your miracle. He's a little dude, that Darren. Mm. No, it was. It was a. I, I, I was a little bit worried this was going to be mawkish, and over the top, and you know, and it, you know, it's not particularly subtle. It's not subtle, but it's it just pulls back enough. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's this is long lost family with medical drama, so it's heartwarming and hopefully feel good. Um, you know, and I did tear up quite a few times watching it, even though I was fighting that. <laughs> you know, my cynicism was sort of fighting my emotional warmth. But, um, you know, there was, it was. I think Emma uh, Willis is brilliant. I think she is the new Davina. You know, she's got a much sort of cooler but still warm kind of aspect. They could be sisters, I swear. Well, maybe, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, you can't have Davina on every show. So Emma Willis is, is sort of, you know, she. I think she's stepping into a nice kind of warm, popular fashion. This is that of, first show for her that yeah, does absolutely. that, isn't it? It's yeah. going to be yes. the one that's transform transformative for her, definitely. And And she doesn't come across as being... Um, you know what's the word too too close and too voyeuristic, which is one of the kind of there's a real taste sort of uh, minefield for the producers on this one because you want to know everything, you want a little bit of the the, the grief, but you don't want to be too intrusive. You know what I mean? Because it, it's too painful then. So 
it, it, it's a great watch. It is a good watch. You know, it, I think it's it's quite difficult to watch sometimes. But this is the kind of thing that you watch and you think, I'll never moan again about my own life, you know, until the show finishes, in which case I start moaning. It just resume. But this is, the, <laughs> this, is, this is a perfect ITV show. Perfect. Absolutely. It was incredibly sweet. Um, and it's what ITV does well, you know, with this long-lost family, that, that, type of, uh, that type of world. And I think it'll be a hit for them. But, yeah, as you say, it, 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 at the end of it where he gets to, um, you know, kick the penalty. In, uh, the only, hey, the only, no spoilers. The only... The only uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. He can... That was a massive spoiler, but I'm <laughs> yeah, sure... I'm sure can he I'm... Walk? No, no shit, he can, <laughs> can walk. He walk? Yeah. It would be a much... A different type of show, really dark as hell. If uh, if we find out that he can't actually I mean, walk the, that, in the end, the, that moment in the middle though, where the girl, the the, the blind deaf woman has her that was the best scene in the implant, whole, yeah. and you think, hang on, what is happening? Because there's a bit of confusion, and then she reacts so badly. Mm. That's a, that's a very powerful bit of telly. That that, that genuinely, <gasps> you know, you you don't because you don't know what's happening then, and that 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 that, that jolts you a little bit. And that's the thing about this show. I mean, it, it's it's all right that there's. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of soft piano playing and <laughs> shots of you know birds tweeting and things <laughs> like that. You know, I got a little bit set up, fed up with that. But the actual narrative, the human narratives, are good and interesting. And um, I felt a bit bad for him that it was at Cardiff City. I thought they could have picked a better club. <laughs> uh, you're, look, you're a metropolitan hipster. <laughs> Given that Richard Klein has exited the building, this feels like. One well, of, he could be one song. of his best commissions. Well, yeah. absolutely. I yeah. mean, this, this is, as I said before, it's a perfect ITV show. It, it works brilliantly on ITV. It works very well with the commercial breaks. I don't know if this would work on the BBC as well. Sometimes ITV can be more naked and more emotive in the way that the BBC would have to be, would be slightly embarrassed to do. Do you see what I mean? And they've backed it as well. They put it on a Thursday night, not not the dreaded Tuesday night slot. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, Pete says, this will be a hit. It's, yeah. it, it's going to be a hit. It's, it's All of those ITV commissioners who've now left the building are stunning to uh, actually <laughs> yes, have some hits. Steve, Steve November's got a couple of hits on right now, hasn't Well, look, Marcella's yeah. a, a massive hit for yeah. him and he's no longer there. So, yeah, it'd be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your miracle begins on the 28th of April at 9pm on ITV. TV. And it's time for us to shut up shop. Thanks to my guests, Sean Kelly, Sean Doherty, Peter White and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, thanks to you for listening as well. Your company is always appreciated. Until next time, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast Talking TV recorded at Maple Street Studios. 